Good morning. Scott Luton here with you on this edition of This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. On this program, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we take a look back at the upcoming week, and then we share some of the most relevant events and milestones from years past. Of course, mostly business-focused, with a little dab of global supply chain, and occasionally, we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So I invite you to join me on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, let's dive in to this week in business history. Hello, and thanks for joining us. I'm Kelly Barner, owner of Buyer's Meeting Point, and the host of Dial P for Procurement here on Supply Chain Now. You can join us on the third Tuesday of each month for a video live stream that runs from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern as I bring together the leading minds in corporate spend management and do my best to blur the lines between procurement and supply chain. In this week's show, we'll be remembering a number of key stories, innovations, inventions, and firsts that took place over the years between August 2nd and the 6th. Starting with our main story, a very important first that took place at a very specific location, the corner of East 105th Street and Euclid Avenue in Cleveland, Ohio, on August 5, 1914. That is the day that the first electric traffic signal was installed. The signal was installed by the American Traffic Signal Company. Booth attendants were able to control the red and green lights at each corner of the intersection. To warn everyone that a signal change was coming, a buzzer, which was also part of the signal system, would go off before the color switch. There was even an emergency switch that the operator could flip to stop all traffic and allow fire engines to pass through the intersection. Prior to this, a police officer would stand in the middle of a busy intersection and hold up either a stop sign or a go sign. Not only was that a tedious job, it was a dangerous one based on where the officer had to stand. This first traffic light system cost $1,500 to install, about $40,000 in 2021 dollars, and it was deemed a complete success. It was much better than its non-electric predecessor, that's for sure. The world's very first traffic light was installed in London in 1868. It was gas-lit and manually operated, and unfortunately, the signal exploded less than a month after it was put into use, injuring the police officer who was operating it at the time. There are a couple of things we all expect from modern traffic signals that weren't yet in place, however. First, green means go would have to be a future refinement. When the light was red, the sign said stop, but when it was green, it read proceed. The colors red and green and their respective meanings came from British industrial machinery dating back to the 19th century. Second, there was no yellow light yet, which depending on who taught you how to drive, either means time to slow down or gun it. 
The yellow light was not added to the signal until Detroit police officer William Potts came up with the idea in 1920. He was also the one to create a four-way or four-sided light so that one signal could direct an entire intersection. But this is a business history podcast, and I'm sure you want to know the business connection to this story. Well, here it is. So first we have to talk about the fascinating traffic conditions from the early 20th century. They were crazy. And I'm saying that as someone who lives in Boston. There were cars, pedestrians, horse-drawn carriages, streetcars, bicycles, trolleys, and children. They were trying to share a space that wasn't really big enough for all of them. And there were no real established or accepted rules of the road. Cars, or maybe I should say automobiles to stay in period, were so much faster than everything else out there. Most people couldn't afford cars. And so they became seen as the bad guys of the road. What do we call that today? A negative brand image. Auto manufacturers weren't particularly fond of being blamed for all those accidents. So the question became one of who owned the streets. Today we think of streets as a place for cars. Back then, however, ownership was in transition at best. If anything, the streets belonged to pedestrians. But one pedestrian after another kept getting themselves run over by automobiles and everyone was mad at the cars and their drivers. To make matters worse, the victims of these accidents were disproportionately children and elderly people who couldn't get out of the way in time. The November 23, 1924 cover of the New York Times showed a car being driven by a skeleton, positioning cars as killing machines. A group of anti-automobile activists came together and tried to force automakers to limit the speed of cars. They failed, but the new regulation had been too close of a shave for the auto industry. They decided it was finally time for them to act. Automakers, dealers, and enthusiast groups joined forces and pushed to redefine the streets as the domain of cars rather than people. The crime of jaywalking was born. Frustrated pedestrians tried to counter with the term jay-driving, but it never caught on. The industry also flexed their media and communications muscles to tip the scales in their favor. The National Automobile Chamber of Commerce established a free wire service for newspapers. Reporters could submit the details of a local traffic accident, and the NACC would send them back an article they could print by the next day. Unsurprisingly, these articles, which were very popular with readers, tended to blame pedestrians for accidents, not the cars or their drivers. AAA started running school safety campaigns to teach kids to stay out of the streets and out of the way of cars. That also set the expectation that it was a child's responsibility to keep themselves on the sidewalk, where pedestrians now belonged. Although traffic signals were a groundbreaking innovation back in 1914, they are a regular part of life for most of us. Here are a few additional fun facts. According to AAA, the average American spends 58.6 hours each year waiting at red lights. Red light has a longer wavelength than the other colors, 
so it can be seen from further away. This helps drivers hit the brakes a little sooner to stop in time. Newcastle University in England is testing a traffic signal system that can communicate with a car's navigation system, displaying information about how fast a driver needs to travel to avoid sitting at local red lights. I have to wonder how that innovation will work out for pedestrians. We can all relate to traffic lights, but there are a lot of other interesting business milestones and firsts that took place on this week's dates as well. On August 2nd, 2018, Apple became the first American publicly listed company to reach $1 trillion in value. Now, before you get too excited about that milestone, consider this. Just two years later, on August 19th of 2020, Apple became the first publicly traded U.S. company to reach a market capitalization of over $2 trillion, meaning that their valuation doubled in two years. That makes Apple's market value greater than the GDP of numerous developed countries, including Italy, Brazil, Canada, Russia, and South Korea. On August 3rd, 1977, Radio Shack introduced the TRS-80 personal computer, and within weeks, thousands of units had been ordered at $599 a piece, a package that included a monitor and a cassette player. It wasn't a musical cassette player, but more like a precursor to the floppy disk, and it came with a couple of card games on it. In the year after it was made available, Radio Shack stores would sell 100,000 TRS-80s. Back then, that was enough to represent 50% of the personal computer market. But nothing lasts forever, and today, Tandy is nothing but business history. They ceased operations in 2000. Radio Shack has fallen on hard times as well. In 1977, when the TRS-80 was released, they had 5,000 locations. That was part of how they saturated the market with their personal computer. Today, only about 10% of those locations remain, and the company is now owned by a holding company and conducts most of its business online. On August 4, 1821, the first Saturday Evening Post was published. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, it was the most widely circulated weekly magazine in America. It included fiction and non-fiction articles, cartoons and special features, but the magazine is probably best remembered today for the cover designs done by Norman Rockwell. Unfortunately, with the rise of affordable television sets and expanded programming in the 1950s and 1960s, the Saturday Evening Post began to decline in popularity but it wasn't quite done making news. In 1967, the Post was sued for defamation by football coaches Bear Bryant and Wally Butts because of an article that accused them of conspiring to fix a game between the University of Alabama and the University of Georgia. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court, who ultimately ruled against the magazine finding that they were guilty of a reckless lack of professional standards when examining the allegations for reasonable credibility. 
I'm sure some of my colleagues and fellow hosts at Supply Chain Now will have opinions about that particular case, especially since it included the University of Georgia. On August 5, 1861, the first federal income tax was put in place by President Abraham Lincoln, predominantly to fund the Union war effort. Congress agreed to impose a 3% tax on anyone making an annual income over $800. Congress repealed the original tax law in 1871, but in 1894, Congress enacted a flat rate federal income tax, which was ruled unconstitutional the following year by the U.S. Supreme Court because it was a direct tax, not apportioned according to the population of each state. In 1909, Congress passed the 16th Amendment, which became the basis for the federal income tax system used today. Congress ratified the 16th Amendment in 1913, effectively overruling the Supreme Court's decision. We mark the anniversary, I won't say we celebrate it, the anniversary of that outcome every year in April on Tax Day. Well, that wraps up this edition of This Week in Business History. Thank you so much for tuning in to the show each week. Don't forget to check out the wide variety of industry thought leadership available at SupplyChainNow.com. As a friendly reminder, you can find This Week in Business History wherever you get your podcast from. And be sure to tell us what you think. We would love to earn your review, and we encourage you to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. On behalf of the entire team here at This Week in Business History and Supply Chain Now, this is Kelly Barner wishing all of our listeners nothing but the best. On that note, we'll see you next time here on This Week in Business History.